Jack removed the cap from his fountain pen. Black ink flowed freely over the pages as his words just poured out in a flurry. He was writing to Christians, but he was also writing to his country. Here's what Jack had to say. If God were good, he would make all of his creatures perfectly happy. If he were almighty, he would be able to do that which he wished. But the creatures are not happy. Therefore, God lacks either goodness or power or both. It's tempting to believe that, isn't it? Because sometimes life just hurts. Like if God is all-powerful, why would he allow this into my life? Surely he would have stopped it. Or if God is good in his character, why would he ever want this for me? Maybe God is not everything that you thought that he would be. So these words this morning, some of you are in that place, and I realize that, and these will be very present words for you. Some of you are not in that place right now. You have been, or maybe you will be, and so I ask that you file these thoughts away for just a little bit. Jack's pointed pen mercifully continues, pain insists on being attended to, he writes. And then here's the truth bomb. God whispers to us in our pleasures, but shouts to us in our pains. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. In my mind, Jack, better known as the author of the Chronicles of Narnia, C.S. Lewis, hits the nail right on the head. He raises attention that few of us are courageous enough to vocalize, but all of us have felt at one point or another. What does God have to do with suffering? Is there peace anywhere on the horizon? Because here's the point with, with suffering and peace. It's not a question of, is there any suffering in this world? Will bad things ever happen to me? Of course they will, and they have. Maybe they are. But the question is, what do we do with it when we are faced with those things? Hold on to that for just a second. So last week, we began this new sermon series called Playlist. And this whole sermon series is oriented around one idea. When we see God rightly, we will worship him freely. When we see God rightly, we will worship him freely. So last week, we looked at Psalm 23. It's this nice, quaint, pleasant pastoral scene. Psalm 23 is written from the recliner with a warm cup of coffee and a blanket. Psalm 77 is written face down on the hardwood floor, knees aching and voice hoarse. Psalm 23 is green pastures, quiet waters. Psalm 77 is plowed earth, raw, uneven, overturned. Psalm 23 is a five-star hotel with an infinity pool. Psalm 77 is a construction site that is probably flooded right now. This is a gritty psalm that dives headfirst into the problem of pain and through 20 verses of Hebrew poetry gives us insight into God's relationship to suffering. By giving us four keys to a meaningful prayer, this psalm teaches us that God's past provision leads to my present peace. I'll say that again. God's past provision leads to my present peace. So let's dive in. 
Before we get to the first of these meaningful or, or keys to a meaningful prayer, we need to back up and see who the writer is and what his situation is. So we look at the subtitle and we can see that the writer is someone named Asaph. It's not David this week. It's some guy named Asaph. We don't know a whole lot about him, but here's what we do know. Asaph lived at the time of King David, so about a thousand years before Jesus. Asaph was appointed by David as, as one of 18 worship leaders in Israel. This was his job. Also, Asaph contributed 11 of the Psalms. He's written them by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, so he shows up in here quite a bit. Well, what about his situation? We don't know much about that either, but there is a clue. It says, this is written to the choir master or to the choir director. Did you catch that in the subtitle? Here's what we can make of this, that this is a communal psalm. There's something here that we all could identify with. Asaph intended that this would be used in a worship gathering. Now, here's why that's important. I don't know if you've noticed this or not, but worship can be a pretty divisive thing, depending on what you focus on. Worship is not a presentation to evaluate. It's not a performance to watch. Worship is a corporate creation that we all have a share in contributing to. Worship is, at least biblically, God's people reflecting God's truths for God's glory. And that's it. God's people reflecting God's truths for God's glory. And so it doesn't matter what's on stage. If I'm focusing on the one person that shows up in this psalm, that's what matters. That's when worship happens. God's people reflecting God's truths for God's glory. And so whatever Asaph is about to say, he's asking all of us to get behind and shoulder in. So what's he saying? Here we go. The first key to a meaningful prayer is honest emotion. Honest emotion. Take a look in verse 1 and see if you can't hear his honesty here. I cry aloud to God, aloud to God, and he will hear me. In the day of my trouble, I seek the Lord. In the night, my hand is stretched out without wearying. My soul refuses to be comforted. When I remember God, I moan. When I meditate, my spirit faints. Selah. Do you hear his honest emotion in there? Like David in Psalm 23, Asaph starts off from a very personal place. But unlike David, this isn't very pretty. So it's safe to say that Asaph has something on his mind. But he doesn't really get specific, does he? Part of me, I'm like, dude, what is going on? Like, what led to this? How can you say that? Like, what happened in your life that just like this stuff just, just comes out of you? But that's not really important. Remember, this is a communal psalm, and so by keeping the information general, he's also keeping it very relatable. But here's what strikes me about this psalm. First three verses anyway. Did you notice how physical this is? Like his body is involved in this. He says, I cry aloud to God. And then he says it again, aloud to God. Like he's really leaning in. And then he says, at night my hand is stretched out without wearying which in this, when this, in this culture is like a posture that's desperate saying, God, like I need you to show up. It's like not this quaint kind of prayer. It's like this, I cannot put my arms down. I need you to show up. 
And then he says, my soul refuses to be comforted. Like, I can't comfort myself. My friends can't comfort me. Not even God can comfort me. Like, something's going on. Something's not right deep inside of me. My hands are ringing. My head is hanging. When I meditate, God, I moan. My spirit faints. Like, no wonder there's a Selah at the end of this thing. Like, my brain just needs a break. <laughs> like, dude, slow down. Get a cup of coffee and just relax a minute. What's he doing? He's putting his whole weight of his emotions on God. He's pinning it all on him and saying, deal with it. Because I can't. You ever been in that spot? Deal with it, God, because I'm done. I've had my limit. I can't take it anymore. Here, I'm going to pin it all on you to figure it out. Anybody ever been accused of being an overly emotional person? If you just nudged your spouse, you're in trouble. Here's the thing about emotions. Emotions are great gauges. They are terrible guides. They are great gauges. They are terrible guides. Guides, here's what I mean. So in my truck, I've got a dashboard, just like all of you do in your cars, right? I've got miles per hour, I've got RPMs, I've got battery level, I've got like the oil level, I've got fuel level. I've got like green lights for my blinkers, I've got blue lights for my high beams, I've got that useless like check engine light. Does anybody know what to do when that thing comes on, by the way? You're like, I'll pull over, like pop the hood, and I'm like, well, no fire, so okay, like shut the hood. Like, okay, all these things that are on my dashboard that alert me to the fact that there is something going on under the hood that I can't see from where I'm sitting. Gauges relay very important information about what's going on under the hood. But they're terrible guides. What would happen if I got on 77 South at the airport and I started heading to Everhard and all I did was like look down here at my miles per hour. All I did was like look at my gauges and obsess over my gauges that are right in front of me. I never looked up and I'm going down at like 65, okay, like 72, 75 miles an hour, down 77, and like I'm just cruising, looking at my gauges. I'm gonna end up in a ditch by like shuffle or shuffle, whichever way you wanna say it, right? The point is I'm not gonna make it very far because gauges are not meant to be guides. It's the same thing with our emotions. They're very, very good. They're necessary. It's part of what it means to be human. But they're terrible at getting us where we need to go. God gave us our emotions to point us to the reality that there is something very deep in me that needs to be fixed. And further, I'm not the person to fix it. Here's the gospel. You are worshiping God when you are emotionally honest with him. Because he knows anyway. <laughs> it's not like your emotions are a surprise to him. How is that worship? Because in being emotionally honest with God, you are declaring honestly, just going, you, you alone, you alone can fix all of this stuff that I don't understand. And so you got to fix it because I am done. And here's my word to you, like, as one of your pastors, just to push into this a little bit further. The harder you lean on God, the stronger you will find him to be. But most of us aren't like Asaph. We don't, we don't gospel our hearts in this. Here's what we do with our pain. We either deny it, like we try and sweep it under the rug. We avoid it, like put a blanket over our heads and, like, hide from it and pretend like the pain isn't there for a while. 
We suppress it like trying to hold a beach ball underwater. We amplify it. That's the fun one. That's like the, you don't even know what's going on in my life right now. Right? We obsess over it to the point where it actually, our pain becomes our identity. Or, sixth option, we can gospel it. We can gospel our pain. And only one of those options leads to worship. Because all of those other options, denying, avoiding, obsessing, amplifying, suppressing, all of those other options, if I'm successful in those things, who gets the credit? Me. And then I am awesome. How many of you know that you're not emotionally awesome? Like, don't raise your hand. That'd be like way too vulnerable. Like, here's the point. God can handle it, so pin it all on him. That's the first key to a meaningful prayer is honest emotion. Here's the second key to a meaningful prayer, a passionate plea. A passionate plea. Now Asaph brings God into the picture. After expressing what's going on, verses 1 through 3, Asaph elevates the issue. And now he goes, okay, now here's what I'm feeling. Okay, God. Right, verse 4. You hold my eyelids open. I'm so troubled I cannot even speak. I consider the days of old, the years long ago. I said, let me remember my song in the night. Let me meditate in my heart. Then my spirit made a diligent search. Stop right there. That idea of diligent search, super powerful word in Hebrew. It means like a desperate search for something that is game-changing. If I found this, it would change everything. It's used in the Joseph narrative when they're looking for the cup in Benjamin's luggage. Like this desperate search, got to find it. It's in Saul when he's hunting down David. Like he's hunting him out. He's searching for it, a desperate search. In the prophets, it's used when God is going through Jerusalem trying to find righteous people with a lamp. It's this, I got to find it. I got to find it. Well, what's Asaph looking for? Any possible sign that God has not abandoned him. But what he finds is not an answer. He just finds more questions. Take a look at verse 7. There are six questions. Here they go. Will the Lord spurn or reject forever and never again be favorable? Has his steadfast love forever ceased? Are his promises at an end for all time? Has God forgotten to be gracious? Has he in anger shut up his compassion and then say what? Do you hear his passionate plea in there? God, what's happening? You used to be so close. You used to be so real. And then now there's this distance, this wall. Like, where are you going? Where are you taking me? What happened to us? Have you ever asked someone how they're doing and then you get one of those answers? Like, how are you doing today? Like, you look kind of down. What's up? Oh, I'll tell you what's going on. That's what Asaph is doing right now. He's just unloading. Like, I can't keep it in anymore. We don't have time to look at every one of these things in detail, but each one of these questions is actually an indictment on God's character. And they come in pairs. Here's the first two. Will the Lord reject forever, or will he never again be favorable? Implication? God is a quitter, and he has given up on you. Do you ever wonder that? Like maybe you've hit the end of God's love and grace because you just keep screwing up. That word favor is a tremendously important theological word. It means that God is inclining himself to the needs of his people in mercy and grace. 
Second pair of questions. Has his steadfast love ceased or are his promises at an end? Implication. God is unloving and he doesn't keep his promises to you. So now Asaph turns not just to question God's heart, but also his faithfulness to his covenant promises. Like, yeah, you made those promises with like Abraham and like Moses and David, but not me. Like, I've, I've burned that bridge, God. You broke your promise with me because I don't feel like you're around anymore. And then the last two, that to me are the most heartbreaking. He says this, has God forgotten to be gracious or has he in anger shut up his compassion? Implication. God is forgetful, and he is motivated by anger, not love. And that's the most heartbreaking to me because Asaph, like, asserts himself as the reason for God's distance. He says, God, maybe I, something I did caused you to pull back from me. Do you see how his question's narrow? Like, did you just, like, put a padlock on your love, like, turn around and walk the other way? Because that's how I feel right now. The questions go from feeling this rejection to questioning God's heart and then suggesting the reason for the distance. Here's the crux of his pain. God, did you change? Because if God changes, that presents a massive theological problem. So I want to tell you a story that I think illustrates this idea and this tension. It involves an actual radio transcript between the British Navy and the Irish Navy, okay? So in 1995, off the coast of Kerry, Ireland, a British sailing ship received this message from the Irish Navy. Here we go. Please divert your course 15 degrees to the south to avoid a collision. Here's their response. Recommend you divert your course 15 degrees to the north to avoid a collision. This is going to be interesting. Here's the Irish response. Negative, you'll have to divert your course 15 degrees south to avoid a collision. Here come the British back again. This is the captain, oh man, of the British Navy ship. I say again, divert your course. This is going to be fun. Let's see what happens next. Negative. I say again, you will have to divert your course. Now look at what the British go. This is the aircraft carrier HMS Britannia, the largest ship in the British Atlantic fleet. We are accompanied by three destroyers, three cruisers, numerous support vessels. I demand that you change your course 15 degrees north. I say that again, is 15 degrees north or counter, oh man, countermeasures. It's got fun. Countermeasures will be undertaken to ensure the safety of this ship. Here's what the Irish have to say. We are a lighthouse. Your call. (laughs) I love that. I love it because it makes the Irish look awesome, which is great. So they moved. (laughs) So what's the point? We serve a God who never changes. He doesn't change his mind. He doesn't change his heart. He's not like the capricious gods that lived around Asaph's people in this time. He's not like the Greek gods that would come along later that were spiteful and vengeful and would shoot lightning every time they got offended. He's not like the Roman gods who were so disinterested in humanity that they lived far apart. He's not like our modern gods of materialism and comfort that are oriented all around us. 
Side note, if your God is just the personification of what you already want, you need a new God. But the God of the Bible is different. He's not a passing fad, nor is he subject to my opinion. He is a never-changing, always steadfast, immovable rock that we can either crash into because of our pride or we can cling to in our desperation. He never changes or turns. He isn't out for popular vote, nor does he seek consensus. He does what he wants, when he wants, how he wants it. He is unconditionally sovereign, eternally wise, and unquestionably good, despite how I feel. And so you can ask him to move if you want to. But he is the lighthouse, and we reorient our lives around him. And so my desperation, this passionate plea, or this 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 appeal, as Asaph would put it, isn't me begging God to bend himself to me. It's a passionate plea for God to remain faithful for who he's always shown himself to be like. God, stay faithful to your promises. That's the second key to a meaningful prayer is a passionate plea. Here's the third key to a meaningful prayer, a proven relationship. A proven relationship. And now verse 10. This is where like everything gets awesome. Verse 10. Then I said, I will appeal to this, to the years of the right hand of the Most High. Very curious phrase. We're going to get back to that in just a bit. I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember your wonders from old. I will ponder all of your work and meditate on all of your mighty deeds. Your way, O God, is holy. What God is great like our God? You are the God who works wonders. You made known your might among the peoples with your arm, you, or you with your arm redeemed your people, the children of Jacob and Joseph. And there's another Selah. And all of a sudden, everything changes. It's like Asaph took a negative of a photograph and then just developed it. All the lines fall in the same places. The content is the same. But everything that was negative is now positive. Everything that was dark is now light. God went from being a liar to being a truth teller. God went from being pointless, disconnected, to powerful and working inside of his people. He had abandoned them, and now he's with them and among them. What allows him to make this shift? Because you can see it, right? The whole psalm just goes like a giant hinge. Everything is overturned. He summons something from deep inside of himself. He gospels himself. And he says, even though these feelings are deeply real to me, and it doesn't do me any good to sleep them under the carpet, like I got to give them over to you, God. These are the deepest feelings I have, and I'm pleading with you. Like, here, take all of this junk. This is so deep inside of me, but there is something deeper still. Verse 10, he says, I will appeal to the years that the right hand of the Most High. Here's what he's getting at. In the Old Testament, especially in the Psalms, God's right hand is his hand of action. Psalm 18, verse 35, you've given me the shield of your salvation. Your right hand has supported me. Psalm 20, verse 6, God will answer with the saving might of his right hand. Psalm 63, verse 8, my soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. So let's put all of that together. Asaph is saying that what will bring him the peace he is so desperate for, what verse 10 calls his appeal, 
is recalling the years spent in a proven relationship with God who has done wonderful, mighty, remarkable, admirable, transformative things for him. Here's the point. You can't have faith in a God you don't know. Or put another way, faith follows relationship. Asaph arrives at verse 10 only because he has a proven relationship with God. If I had to distill the gospel message down into one idea, one idea, one idea alone, it would be this. What I couldn't do, God did. What I couldn't do, God did over and over and over again for my redemption and my justification and my sanctification and one day my glorification when I'm with him in heaven. What I couldn't do, God did. That's why this psalm is so stinking powerful. Like when he looks over his shoulder and he sees, okay, God, where have we been? This is the song that God's people have always sung when it comes to their redemption. What we couldn't do, God did. Look at what God has done. God's past provision leads to my present peace. I'm going to way oversimplify something for a second. Do you know why we sin? Do you know why porn addiction is a thing? Do you know why flirtatious texts among coworkers exists? Why our affections are pulled a thousand and one different directions? Because in that moment, you don't believe that God is good enough to give you what you need. I'm not talking to everybody in this room, but I am talking to some of you. <laughs> because here's the deal. You're not saying what I couldn't do, God did. In that moment, you're saying what I couldn't wait on God to accomplish, I did. What I didn't think that God was going to get around to fulfilling in my life, I took. What I didn't think that God was going to give me, I robbed. At its core... This is the most tragic thing about this. At its core, sin is nothing more than me choosing my ability to fulfill me over God's ability to fulfill me. And guys, here's the crazy sad news. Here's why that kind of stuff is so prevalent. is because so many Christians have a faith that's built on not a relationship with God, but performing for him. And this is what Asaph is driving at. He's like, you don't get to verse 10 without a relationship. You can't say that without a relationship. And so we look at, verse, we look at the psalm and we're looking at verses 1 through 9 and we're tracking. And we're like, yes, emotional honesty, passionate plea. Like, here, God, here's all my junk. And then we get to verse 10. And we go like, well, I mean, that's a really quaint notion for God's ancient people on the other side of the world like a long, long time ago. But that's not 2019. He doesn't know my problems, my pain, my family, my issues, what's inside my head and what's deep down inside my soul. And so we detach God from our life like a quaint grandpa that you'd visit on Christmas. And we treat his word with the same respect that you quaintly thumb through a charming scrapbook. And then we wake up one day to believing that God may actually be a myth. That's how sin works. And so I've been waiting 20 minutes to get to this point. Do you have a relationship with the almighty God? And it can't be a maybe. 
He wants so desperately for you. Do you know him? Are you being formed in a relationship with him or just going through the motions knowing about him? Are you peripheralizing God's goodness or are you personalizing God's goodness? Third key to a meaningful prayer is a proven relationship, but there's more. Here's the fourth key to a meaningful prayer is enduring hope. Now, here's where things get wonderfully, beautifully, spectacularly specific. Verse 16. When the waters saw you, O God, when the waters saw you, they were afraid. Indeed, the deep trembled. The clouds poured out water. The skies gave forth thunder. Your arrows flashed on every side. The crash of your thunder was in the whirlwind. Your lightnings lighted up the world. The earth trembled and shook. Your way was through the sea, your path through the great waters, yet your footprints were unseen. You led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. God's past provision leads to my present peace. Asaph remembers, or he gospels himself, with everything that God has ever done. Starting with creation and these phenomenally like big old powers. Like this sounds like a scene from like Thor or something, doesn't it? Like you got water crashing and like earth shaking. It's like this big old thing. He's actually pulling some awesome theological language here. Because he's actually creating this image of a theological sparring match between the God of the Bible and an ancient cultic God called Baal. And if you know anything about this idea of Baal in the Old Testament, this was a sadistic, nasty, dark God that lived around God's people. The tribes around God's people in the promised land worshipped Baal. And they were always going like this. And spoiler alert, every time God wins, right? So here's how this works. These words, all this like thunder crashing, earth quaking. Asaph loads all of that out there. Because he's trying to picture God in these majestic, huge, otherworldly terms. You got clouds, water, thunder, lightning. Take a wild guess at what God is, or what Baal is supposedly the God of. Clouds, thunder, water, lightning. And so right here, Asaph is like, look, there's other gods around you that are going to try and lay claim on your life. There's one God who can actually deliver the kind of provision that your soul actually needs. Then Asaph puts an exclamation point on this hymn to God's supremacy by reaching back even further to the most formative image in our collective history as God's people, the Exodus, when he parted the sea, led his people through, and saved them from annihilation. That's that bit about Moses and Aaron at the end. And then all of a sudden, this truth starts to emerge when you look at this psalm in 20 verses. God's past provision leads to my present peace. When you look at all that he's done, everything he's given, and that could be like yesterday for you or that could be like a thousand years ago. Asaph wants to leave no doubt that God is for you. He has provided for you in the past. He's carrying you in the present and he will provide for you in the future. Even though right now he seems distant and silent. I'm struck by something here at the end of this psalm. I'm struck that despite Asaph's outpouring, like these raw, overturned, rough, but very identifiable emotions, I'm struck by the idea 
that God never says anything. He is completely silent. The entire psalm. You'd expect God to interrupt him at some point, right? I mean, like, whoa, 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 whoa. Time out, buddy. Don't forget who you're dealing with here. Shh, my child, it's okay. But he doesn't do that, does he? He lets Asaph just dump all of this out. Here's what we should take from this. God's silence is often intentional. But here's what God's silence doesn't mean. God's silence doesn't mean his distance. God's silence does not mean his disregard. His silence does not mean his distraction. And his silence does not mean his disapproval. A gospel theology, this idea that God loves you so much that he sent his son, he gave him up as the ultimate provision for you. This gospel theology is not incompatible with a theology of suffering. Fast forward a thousand years from here into the New Testament. This is the, this is the Apostle Paul where Paul says this. He goes, I want to know Christ. How many in here say like, yeah, I want to know him. I want to know him more and better and closer, right? I want to know Christ. And then Paul explains how that works. He says, I want to know the power of his resurrection. And we're like, oh, man, like, I'm in for that. Yeah, like I want the Holy Spirit to like guide me and direct me and to, to confirm things in my heart that I'm nervous about. And I want that. Like, yeah, give me the power of his resurrection. And then he flips the coin over and he says, and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings. And we're like, nope, not into that. Like Jesus suffered so I don't have to. Right? Like, nope, climb, climb up, sunshine mountain. This is the Christian life. There's this saying around here, and not, not, hopefully not around here, but I've seen it on plaques, I've seen it on Facebook memes, I've seen it like everywhere, and it drives me crazy. And it's terrible theology, and it says this, God will never give you more than you can handle. I hate to burst your bubble. That is not in the Bible. Nowhere near it. Because God always gives us more than we can handle. Because suffering is not about what you can handle, it's about what he can handle. Since when did we become the hero in our own faith story, right? If we're the hero in our own faith story, that makes us Jesus. And I don't think you want that kind of attention. <laughs> our hope isn't in what we can do and what we can handle. It's what God has already done. And so people say, I can't handle it anymore. And I'm going, great, you're this close to understanding what gospel suffering is about. To be brought right up to the brink and then have God go, I gotcha. Rather than focusing on what you can handle, shift your hope on what God has accomplished. Because that's an enduring hope. So that's the fourth key to a meaningful prayer is enduring hope. Jack put the cap back on his pen, mumbled a prayer, and got up from his desk. Do you remember the tension that we started with? This idea that suffering exists either because God is not all-powerful or not good or both. Here's why Psalm 77 matters to us here in 2019. We are hardwired to look back at God's past actions on our behalf as reason to believe in his power for us and his goodness to us. You and I and everybody in this room, we were created to live in the intended ways of God, but we've rebelled and we've chosen our own way. But because of his power for us and over us and his goodness to us, he gave us his son Jesus as this perfect, this perfect relationship restoring sacrifice. That if I would just humble myself and just look back 
and go, God, look at what you did. <laughs> look at that sacrifice that you gave for me. What other provision am I waiting for? What could possibly be more fulfilling than that? And this perfect provision that God gave in the person named Jesus gives me complete peace with my Father, with myself, and with my world. There's nothing else I could ever want. So here's the deal with worship. Here's the deal why we're here today. It's not because you had nothing else to do. All we do is we just lift up Jesus and go, look at how awesome he is. That past provision from God that now leads to my present peace, no matter what I'm going through, he is enough. <laughs> Let's pray together. Father God, you are wise. And so in your wisdom, you knew from before time started, before the clock and the countdown ever happened, God, that you were planning our redemption by the work of your son. You are wise and you are generous and you are good. So Father, as we think on him, we think of this gift that you gave us, God, please let our hearts be encouraged that where we are, what's staring us in our face right now, you have overcome it. It is not bigger than you. You are sovereign. You are good. You are wise. You are loving. You are gracious. You are merciful. Father, we love you. In Christ's name we say, amen.